Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and happy holidays from your old friends here at Ain't It Scary. Uh, I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's a show, of course, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, uh, an evergreen podcasts network. And we're here to uh, generally to get down to the bottom of um, all things spooky, ooky, bizarre, um, I can't even remember the, the, the series of words we say here, Carrie, because uh, <laughs> I'm a little ill today. I know. Um, and but but that's okay. I'm sure many of our listeners are uh, after uh, you know holiday holiday gatherings. That's that's what it is now. Yeah, if any of you are going through that sneezy, coffee, mucusy time that Sean is, and I'm sure I will be very shortly. Oh, there's no escaping. Yeah, even we, in a bigger house, there's no escaping. We feel your pain. Um, so uh, with that said, we're not going to sit here in front of these mics. Um, for too long, because I don't have to. I don't want to have to burn mine and throw it on the plague <laughs> cart when it comes by. I got better. I, I got. I feel happy. <laughs> um. So we are just going to get right into um our extra tent for this week. Uh, a little holiday gift for you all, as we uh, and hopefully you enjoy uh, a little bit of holiday time off. Yep, we are going to have an interview. Uh, with the author and illustrator of the book, Connecticut Cryptids, A Field Guide to the Weird and Wonderful Creatures of the Nutmeg State. Um, such a great, we talk about the book, obviously, during the interview, but it's uh, such a cool product. It looks like a little field guide. It's yeah. got little uh, notes from the authors, um, sort of on, on mock um, index cards mm-hmm. taped in there. So, um, yeah, cool, funny very interesting um, piece of writing. Yeah, really well put together. The author is Patrick Scalisi, and the illustrator is Valerie Ruby Omen. And um, we had a really great time talking to them about all things Connecticut cryptids. Uh, I know a lot of you are nearby, and I know all of you basically love, um, you know... Uh, <laughs> weird little stories. Weird little stories, weird little guys going around. So, uh-huh. um I think I think it's right up all of our listeners' alleys. Can you tell that I'm 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 struggling for oh, words? I know it's so unlike you. Th- that wasn't sarcastic. It's serious. No, I understand. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, uh, I'm call me Thomas Jane because I'm I'm in a mist, <laughs> a fog. I'm in a fog. Okay. Well, you're punishing yourself for well, sure. I guess I'm Tom Welling because I'm in the fog right now. Oh boy, he's he needs help. <laughs> we need to get him to a hospital. Um, so yeah, enjoy, uh, enjoy this, uh, interview with Pat and Val. We had a great time talking to them about, um, you know, little guys going around. Absolutely. And we hope you all had very happy holidays. You're enjoying this strange little week between, uh, the end and the beginning of the next year. And, um, 
yeah, we won't be talking to everyone until next year. So we'll do our little Nostradamus roundup then. Can't wait. And uh, we'll see what the topic's going to be in the new year. But really looking forward to another year of podcast fun. Yeah, try to stay warm, everybody. The days are getting longer now. Halfway out of the dark. <laughs> Today, we have two very special guests on the show. We have Patrick Scalisi and Valerie Ruby Omen. Pat is the author of the recent book, Connecticut Cryptids, A Field Guide to the Weird and Wonderful Creatures of the Nutmeg State. And Val is the illustrator of the book, which, of course, includes many fun strange little creatures to portray. So thank you so much for joining us today, Pat and Val. Oh, and thank you so much for having thank us. Thank you. Now, Connecticut Cryptids includes tons of different cryptid stories that are based solely in the nutmeg state. And as listeners to the show know, we really take special pride in highlighting the underrated weirdness of Connecticut. So when we learned about your book, we knew we had to have you guys on the show. Um, <laughs> So to start off, I really want to start with with a question for Pat. Now, what initially drew you to the topic of cryptids specifically, and especially in regards to Connecticut? Sure. So um, I've lived in Connecticut all my life, uh, born and raised here. Um, I really have an interest in storytelling, and I like um, local history, and uh, trivia, and, like folklore, that kind of thing. And um, I had an awareness of some of the bigger um, stories from Connecticut, um, like the Black Dog of the Hanging Hills is probably one of our more famous ones. So I knew about that. And I knew the one from my hometown, which is, I live in Naugatuck, so we have the Naugatuck. And um, my favorite I, illustrations in the book, by the way, <laughs> are so cute. yeah, one looks one looks very happy and one looks like it's up to mischief. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I, I had an awareness of some of the stories and I was wondering if there were others. And so I started doing some initial research and I didn't know where the research was going to lead or what form the project was going to take. You know, if it was going to be a book, blog post, something else. Um, and I, I began by contacting, starting to contact the historical societies throughout the state. And as I did the research, it soon became clear that there were a lot of stories and there was probably enough content to build a book and the stories I was finding were very, very interesting, and some were much lesser known. Certainly, I hadn't heard the vast majority of them. And so it was at that point, uh, Val and I were friends, um, and um, Val and um, and her spouse, Dee, had, um, would have art nights at their place where kind of local artists would get together and we would you know, read things we had written or show off artwork we had made. So we knew each other, we were friends, and uh, I, I asked if uh, you wanted to illustrate the book if, if I wrote it, and thankfully you said yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, it would it would have been silly if I said no. <laughs> <laughs> but it would have certainly been awkward. 
Yes. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> so, so that's how the project got its start and how I kind of got my initial interest. Yeah, and I was going to ask Val how she uh, sort of became part of this, and now we have that, you know, the the beginnings of of this partnership here. Now, were there any challenges in drawing these creatures that we don't really exactly have like reference photos of? Um, you know, honestly, it was with with Pat's descriptions and everything. It was honestly quite easy to get like an idea of what the creatures are supposed to look like. Um, there are some things like the Glowacus that like has illustrations that exist or like the Higgin and Mucket, there's illustrations that exist. So I kind of based my illustrations off of those. But um, I think the thing that was more challenging for me was the creatures that are supposed to look more like actual like like the wolves for example like the the white wolf of the peacedale cemetery i had to redo that illustration so many times pat's laughing because he knows um i i just don't like drawing wolves i i learned through doing this project um <laughs> so, you know like i i don't know like it, i i had a lot more fun with the creatures that were more fantastical like like the Naga, I really had a lot of fun with that. The the blockheads, like the the more the 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 weirder the better, honestly. You know? So like when it came time to like, oh wow, I have to draw a wolf, I was like not <laughs> interested. <laughs> you really you really did come to eat that wolf. I, I really did. I I'm like I'm happy with the illustration. I've made peace with it, but like I, I'm I'm all set. I'm, I filled my wolf quota, you know. <laughs> Well, the thing about wolves is if you get the wolf, you know, if any part of the wolf is wrong, the reader's going to know, you know what I mean? The reader, right. the reader exactly. hasn't seen a dog. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There was like so much pressure. I was like, this has to look like a wolf. It's a wolf, you know? <laughs> so yeah, no, absolutely. The wolf looks great. And I really love the variety too, because, you know, there are some kind of humanoid type creatures, which we'll talk about. And, um, you know, there's some that are scary looking. My favorite one, and I'm going to show it in case we throw this out on Patreon, but um, the Grinch, it's so cute. I want a little stuffed Grinch. Um, it's like a little, it's got, it's like a puppy giraffe, like sort of hybrid. Like I think it's a, so adorable and so unique looking. Um and and just really nice details too. Who doesn't love a sleepy little guy with a beer belly? I yeah. I, I really feel this vibe. <laughs> yeah. I I can relate to it. <laughs> the 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 Grinch story is is really great and actually it was one of the more satisfying uh, stories to tell. I I hope you don't mind. No, no so kind of going off. On Grinch it up. <laughs> um, but I don't think. Um, I don't think many people outside of the town of Greenwich knew that story, especially the folks who had worked on it um, 50 years ago when it came out. And so that was a particularly satisfying story to tell because it was lesser known, but it was a it was a really really great story. And um, I spoke to the woman who wrote the report that the Greenwich came from, um, and. Uh, she was, I, she was like so pleasantly surprised. She was like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad like somebody remembers the Grinch. And <laughs> like, uh, it was the historical society in Greenwich who, who told me about it. They're like, oh yeah, we have this story 
on, you know, that was written some time ago. So um, that was really cool. And the the person who did the original illustrations of the Grinch for the, the town report was Mort Walker, and he was a cartoonist who lived in Greenwich at the time. Uh, quite a famous cartoonist. He created the comic strip Beetle Bailey. And so, yeah. yeah. So he happened to live in Greenwich and somehow got involved in doing this report with the writer. And when I spoke to her, um, she was telling me a little bit about their creative process. And she was like, um, yeah, Mort would sketch out like a bunch of different sets of eyes. And he would say, choose the one you like. Okay, now I'm going to sketch out a bunch of different noses. Choose the one you like. <laughs> and they went through this whole process until he had put like this this complete creature together that they were That's both so fun. So it, it was just, it was a very satisfying story to, to research and tell. Yeah, that's a great story. And it's so cool when you can actually get in touch with, when you can get all of the actual, you know, people who were involved, the first woman to report this thing. Uh, yeah. That's a pretty cool um, touch of history, which kind of, um, you know what I really like is how every one of these uh, chapters ends with a little uh, note for you, your um Kind of thoughts uh, collectively yeah. on the, but but then also a, like a little a little note card with some handwritten uh, uh, notes that makes the whole thing feel like a field guide almost. Yeah, that is. Yeah, so I actually have to give credit to to Val's spouse D for that. Um, we were all doing the kind of proofreading on the the initial proof, and um, one of the things that was coming up in the reviews was that. Um, we hadn't quite worked in enough of our personality into the book, and through brainstorming, that was the um, that was the kind of solution that we came up with. And as soon as they suggested it, I, I liked it, and then it was just finding creative ways to do the note cards uh, for each chapter. So uh, I could tell you some behind the scenes stories about those. Um, Val's parents' dog whose name is Dewey, has a cameo in the book. He provided the, um, he provided the paw print for the black dog. Yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> yep, yeah, he's in the acknowledge, acknowledge <laughs> It's hard work. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> yep. the, uh, the, the Grinch chapter, I think, has a coffee stain on it, because I was like, oh, it looks like it came from a municipal report, so I felt like that would be appropriate, so. I love that. I, like, dipped a mug of coffee and or um, a mug in coffee and then like this on a note card, like stamped it. Like, yeah. The, um, the wild man, uh, we, the wild man hair in his cat hair that was scraped off the couch. <laughs> uh, one, one of the cats just decided to do it. So. <laughs> yeah, so the, it was really fun. Well, I, I love getting, um, as we're talking about all of these mysterious animals, I love getting all of your animals uh, involved. Yeah. What's more mysterious than a cat, truly? <laughs> now, I have to first ask both of you, do you have a favorite Connecticut cryptid? Yeah, I I have a couple of favorites. Um, I think probably like my, my top favorite is um, Harry Boney, uh, who is one of the, the more humanoid ones. Um, uh, I really like the whole story of Harry Boney because it it just it feels like like a fairy tale. Um, 
like the the area in Connecticut that it took place in doesn't even exist anymore. It's now Candlewood Lake. Uh-huh. So it, it, just picturing what Connecticut looked like when it was when it wasn't Candlewood Lake, like to me is like it's very very whimsical uh, to to just think about and very bony whether or not he was a real person, if he was an elf, you know, there's all these different types of theories on who he was. Um, just the, I think, honestly, a lot of it, I, I, I think Pat, for writing it in such a, a very illustrative way, it was very easy for me to, like, come up with this particular character. And I think that's probably why he's one of my favorites as well, because it was just, like, I really connected with the story. I connected with with the character of Harry Boney. And I mean, you know, he's got a little animal familiar that's a raccoon that includes grapes. Like, how can you not like that? Like, I just, that, that spoke to me. It spoke right to my soul. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't want to draw that guy? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, for me, um, like, like that, I have favorite ones favorite chapters, uh, but one of my absolute favorites is um, the Old Saber Blockheads. Uh, that one was just so satisfying to research. It, it was hard to research, um, but because it was difficult to find some information, but the more I learned about the woman, Mary Starr, who saw these creatures, the more fascinating it became. Um, just in short, Mary Starr was incredibly well-traveled, incredibly intelligent. She spoke multiple, multiple languages. She lived this absolutely incredible life, um, you know, during World War II and after World War II. And um, it was like the her encounter with these, with these creatures, the old say the blockheads, was just like one small part of this absolutely fascinating life that she led. Um, so I, I like the creatures, uh, like the creature component to that story is, is great too, um, because it's just so, you know, no pun intended, out of this world. Um, you know, it's like creatures with cubes for heads with glowing bulbs inside them. Like, I, I don't even think I could imagine that myself. Yeah. Um, it so almost like, reminds me of like the Fresno Nightcrawlers. Like we always call them sentient little pants, you know. Yeah, so bizarre they they don't really relate to anything that we know like no you know certain cryptids are kind of like oh this is kind of like a dog or this is kind of like a bear but the blockheads are are just like cube head creatures and uh, very strange they're like their own thing yeah yeah they're like they're like their own thing and like i said the creature component of the story is, is great and it's just one part of this absolutely fascinating individual had this incredible so I think that's definitely now something that like really drew us to your book was the fact that no one has really tackled this topic in a really comprehensive way there's there hasn't been before like a real you know physical compendium of all of these cryptid legends and, and pieces of folklore from Connecticut um, you know, available in like a book form. You have to go to like different places or, you know, you're going online and you're seeing different stories. But why do you think it, Connecticut itself is often overlooked when it comes to stories of the weird? 
That's a good question. Because <laughs> I'm always thinking about that. <laughs> I, you know, I am too. Um, because there is a lot of weird stuff and just very fun and unique stuff in Connecticut. Um, I think a lot of times, I, I think when people from outside of Connecticut, like look at Connecticut, they're very focused on like ghost stories in particular, which like don't get me wrong, like we have some mm-hmm. incredible ghost stories, but um there's there's so much that people are missing by just focusing on the ghost stories. Like a, a lot of the the stories um in Connecticut crickets are based on, you know, indigenous uh folk stories and things like that. So we are very culturally rich in Connecticut, yeah. which I think a lot of people do overlook. Absolutely. But I think I think people really like to focus on on the ghost stories when they think of Connecticut. That and New Haven Pizza. Like that's <laughs> that's the only thing people care about when they hear <laughs> Connecticut. It's like, oh yeah, maybe maybe Yukon, like, you know, <laughs> but but that's the end of the list, you know. You yeah. know, so, you, you give me a thin crust with some char, I pretty much forget everything else. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it's valid, it's valid. I can't hold it against people. Your mind sure. just goes blank. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, to be honest, when I was doing, the, when I had started doing the initial research, and I was like, okay, there's enough here to do a book, I was like, somebody has to have done this. Like, there's no way this hasn't been done yet. And like, I'm just as shocked as you that nobody else had done it. Um, because the, like there's, I think for folks inside the state, like you said, there there's just a lot of rich culture, a lot of rich tradition. You know, people were bringing. You know, we have a we have a we have traditionally had a big immigrant culture. You know, whether it was European immigrants, you know, immigrants from other parts of the world, South America. Um, we we have a big immigrant tradition, and when People came here, whether it was to the New World or in later parts of America's history. Um, they brought their stories with them, and that's kind of what's reflected. Yeah. Now, I I know the story uh, of this, and, and Sean knows the answer. But for the audience, did you both actually spend time in the field, you know, so to speak, trying to? see if you could see any of these cryptids or find them? Uh, and if so, uh, what was like the craziest thing that happened to you? <laughs> they shared a um, knowing look, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we, I personally did like some field research. Like I went to Downthrow to, to, you know, get the vibe of the Downthrow monster things like that um i i didn't see anything when i was out there um you know i i i wish i did i i am personally i don't know if this is taboo to say but i'm i'm quite the skeptic um not taboo on our podcast because that's like (laughs) i I, I want, I want to believe you know i mean we were just talking about this before um (laughs) but I, I'm the type of person I, I need to see it. I need to see it. I need to know, okay, I can't explain this. So let's, let's look at some other options here. But I unfortunately, regrettably did not see anything that I, I couldn't explain. 
So you're a Scully. Me too, Val. Yes. yes. I, yeah, absolutely. For sure. That's yes. 100%. <laughs> I, I am. I am also definitely skeptical. Uh, I would I, like, I, like I said before, I was more interested in the stories. I, I read this great quote in another cryptic book where I'm paraphrasing here. Essentially, they said, you know, if the, it doesn't matter if the future exists, the story exists. And for me, that's kind of what gives me life. I, I love the storytelling aspect of it. But um, yeah, the couple of places I did go, like I've been to Spruceburg Falls where the where the High Rock Serpent is. Um, it's like a trip to Jewish City. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I went to Jewish City. I went to the graveyard where the Jewish City vampires are buried. Um, I also did not see anything. Um, and would probably need to be one of those people who has to see it to believe it. Now that having been said, um, like there's definitely stuff that we found when we were doing research that like doesn't have as clear of an explanation. And you know, not to constantly come back to the story, but to go back to the the blockhead story again. Mm -hmm. um, Mary Starr had like absolutely no reason to make up this story without seeing the blockheads. First of all, she didn't tell anybody the story until like a year after it allegedly happened. Um, but she had like no reason to make it up. And and she had a fair amount of, even if she were, she had a fair amount of credibility because she was so well educated and like a respected member of the community uh, in the 1940s that and she didn't try to profit off it or anything. So it, at that point, it becomes, well, what's the explanation here? Did she see something? I don't know. Like it, it's that's one of those things that's really weird that there's not a new explanation for. <laughs> yeah, I I think like I definitely you know a skeptic through and through, but there this story in particular, I think like there is like a sense of not knowing and like almost like a sense of like magic to it that like is, is undeniable you know like I don't want to look at the world and not see the whimsy you know but like I also like I want proof you know <laughs> like I'm not just gonna be like oh yeah yeah that's true you know like I want to see it I want to like understand it in in some way you know but um yeah there are a couple of stories that that stick out like you know there, there was something going, you know. <laughs> and, you know, just to, to give our audience kind of a taste of the the strangeness they can expect in this book, um, I noticed that, and these are these stories are kind of divided by region in Connecticut. So, you know, we have all the kind of major parts of the state covered. But even across a lot of those regions, there are a ton of water-based monsters. There's like the Candlewood Lake monster and Candlewood Lake's like a man-made lake. So that's kind of a, a sort of an interesting version of the classic, you know, lake monster story. Um, we have the Fairhaven Sea Dragons. There's a bunch of lake and river serpents. Um, can you kind of tell us a little bit about some of these stories and why do you think we have so many of these sort of weird water-based monsters in Connecticut? It's kind of a popular internationally, too. Right? Yeah, you, yeah. You've got sea serpents everywhere. 
Yeah, so um, obviously maritime culture is a big part of its history. Um, you know, we have a very coastline that was you know, very important um, to industry, to commerce. And um, I think because of that, we have a very, very rich uh, tradition of sea serpent. Um, it, it's really funny kind of go back to the shoreline newspapers in the late 1800s and early 1900s, they would do annual reports each year about the sea serpent sightings. And they would be like, oh, um, you know, there were X number of sea serpent sightings this year. You know, the sightings were kind of, they, you know, they were going more west this year. Or some years they'd be like, oh, you know, it's going farther east, you know, it's headed toward uh, New Haven or, you know, headed toward, the, you know, Long Island or the Rhode Island border this year. And so, yeah, like the Norwalk Hour, all of these papers would run yearly updates about like the sea serpents. And it was just like a given thing news that yeah. was being reported. Um, so I think, yeah. what's that? That's wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great to see some of the, the clippings. And I, I could certainly share some of those with you. Yeah, um, way more metal than a weather report. I'd love to see a sea serpent yes. <laughs> forecast. And um, so that's certainly part of it. And then um, the Connecticut River is such a big, important waterway artery for us that I think, you know, it kind of falls into the same category. Um, you know, that it's so important, but of course, that there were going to be stories about it. Um, as in terms of some of the other ones, like Hanover Lake, I don't really have a good explanation for those, um, except that um, it makes a really good exploration. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that one, that was kind of um, like the the local power company yeah. wanted to make this this lake, and so there's there's part of the legend is like kind of a classic almost a comic booky sort of thing of like, they created this monster, um, the power company did it, you know? And so that's kind of a, a really fascinating take on that classic lake monster, sea monster thing is this sort of man-made man weirdness that inhabits yeah. this man-made area. Sort of Candlewood's Le Candlewood Lake's own local Godzilla. Yeah, kind yeah. of. Yeah, the, um, I, I I got the sense from reading some of the books um, that were written after that one that the creation of Candlewood Lake was um, was a um, contentious issue. Um, I haven't done too much research into the history of the creation of the lake itself and how that whole process played out, but just reading the tone of some of the books, um, you know, folks weren't even calling Connecticut Lightning Power by name, they were just called the Power Company. Um, you know, they, they didn't even want to speak the words. Um, but you got the sense that it was a very, uh, definitely a bit contentious. Um, and the other part of that is that um, the, uh, you know, obviously they had to, Power Company had to buy a lot of land that was going to flood it to create the lake. Um, and some they seized through eminent domain. So there was the push and pull of those people who were losing that land. But the people on the outskirts of the lake 
suddenly had the opportunity to have their property values rise dramatically because now they were it was essentially a So, um, yeah, you got the sense that it was definitely um, a partisan issue. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When we first talked um, about your book, you mentioned, because we had just moved to Stratford, um, and you'd mentioned the Lordship Mermaids. And I, of course, was just fascinated by this as someone who, who dreamed of being a mermaid as a child. <laughs> but, um, you know, th- these aren't quite aerial sort of mermaids. They're a little different. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Lordship Mermaids? Because I, I just love the idea that we have mermaids out there. Sure. So the... Um... The Stratford Point Lighthouse is a prominent landmark in Stratford. And um, before it was taken, uh, before its operation was uh, taken over by the Coast Guard, it was operated by traditional lighthouse keepers. And um, one of the more famous ones was this gentleman named Theodore Judson. And by all accounts, he was a Pretty interesting character. Um, probably had to be to be a lighthouse keeper. Mm-hmm. Um, the one of the interesting things about the Stratford Point is that it wasn't a kind of stereotypical isolated lighthouse where you know it was a lone man and his assistant out on you know some rocky outcropping for months at a time going mad. Um, the Stratford Point, um, the keepers often had their families with them. Um, there was a residence that their families used. So he was there with his family. Um, his daughter actually um, had like five minutes of filming um, when she was growing up because she saved the man from drowning. Um, so they, they were a very prominent and well-respected family. And uh, by many accounts, Theodore was... It was quite a character in his own way. And he used to tell people that um, that they were mermaids living off the coast of Stratford. And that he saw them often and that he did try to catch one one time. Uh, But unfortunately, she slipped out of his grasp. Uh, But as a consolation prize, uh, she had dropped her hairbrush during the struggle. And... um, his explanation was that um, the mermaids got their hairbrushes and other uh, accessories, I guess, mm-hmm. from the staterooms of, of ships that had sunk. Um, and he put the hairbrush on display at the at the uh, lighthouse for anyone who doubted his story about him and was catching the mermaid. And uh, one, one of the more interesting parts of this story is um, he lived a very long life. Um, when he passed away, 
he had an obituary in the New York Times, and the New York Times mentioned the mermaids. Uh, something to the effect of like friends and family could never get him to recant the mermaid tale. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, to, to his dying day, he claimed that the mermaids off the coast of Stratford and saw it. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, do, do you know, I have a lot of questions, of course, but I'm going to ask you two. Uh, do you do you know what this hairbrush supposedly looked like? I mean, you haven't seen the, the hairbrush, have you? No, no. I, I wish I wish there were pictures of it or drawing of it. I wish we knew what happened to it. No, there's no mention of where it went or what happened after. Uh, obviously, at some, you know, as Theodore got older, he eventually retired. He retired very late. I don't remember how old he was. But I think he was in the seventies, and his assistant um, took over um, the keepership of the lighthouse. But there's kind of no mention of what happened uh, to the hairbrush after that. I, I wish we could track it down. I just I hope it had pearls in them. Yeah, but, you know that's that's all I'm hoping. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm gonna be just forced to assume it was a switchblade comb at this point. Um, <laughs> until I'm going you one. never know. <laughs> uh, and the other thing is, I know the uh, assistant who took over the lighthouse said he did, he never saw anything, right? But were there has anyone else reported seeing uh, mermaids off of Lordship that you know of? Well, so so Theodore's assistant and Theodore's wife both backed up his stories while he was the lighthouse keeper but after the after theodore retired and after uh the assistant took over in the lighthouse keeper he was a bit more closed lifted about it i guess he was like well you know i don't, I don't know if there's actually a room in there. So, <laughs> okay um so theodore had support you know for a while when he told the story but <laughs> I don't know. He lost it. Yeah. He had very patient friends and family while he was yes. around. Yes. I love Theodore. I want to I want to hang out with him. <laughs> uh, um, I'll send you a picture of him as well because whatever yeah. you're picturing he looks like in his mind is exactly what he looks like. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like an incredibly grizzled grizzled. <laughs> picture a lighthouse keeper who's seen a mermaid. That's it. You got yes. it. <laughs> Now, it must have been fun to kind of conceptualize a drawing for something like that, because we all have sort of this idea of mermaids, right? But he had his own description of what this particular one that he was trying to catch looked like. So how did you sort of combine that um, classic mermaid vibe with Theodore's experience, Val? Um, well, I... I really tried to focus. It's kind of funny given the, the material, but I tried to focus on realism in a lot of cases. Like, you know, like what would this creature actually look like if it existed in, you know, this, this plane of being. And um, for that one, I, I have to be honest, I was very, <laughs> very inspired by the mermaid from the movie, the lighthouse. Mm. Um, that is my ideal mermaid. So I kind of used her as a jumping point because I feel like that movie kind of, I, I think encapsulates like what actually being a lighthouse keeper could be like because it's very chaotic and, and oh, crazy. Like, yeah, like just kind of desperate. 
So um, I, I, I felt like that kind of gave a better picture of what I was seeing for like a realistic mermaid that a lighthouse keeper might actually see. And like definitely not human, kind of ethereal, you know. Yes. Yeah, definitely ethereal is a really good word to, to use to describe it because I was I was definitely over that. <laughs> and Theodore had he, he provided in his own words mm-hmm. some like really good descriptions. Like like he he was all in on the story because he was like, Oh, then you know they they were they were tiny and petite and it felt like I wasn't you know, I thought it was a child, or like something like that. Like he went all in on the yeah. he, he, he really thought about it. But um, yeah. <laughs> he really thought about it. Yeah. Oh, wow. he, he really saw it. He, he really saw it. Um, <laughs> I can put. Um, uh, I'll put in the chat before we a link to a picture. Oh, awesome! Oh, that's a that's a grizzled lighthouse keeper. <laughs> that's, that's that's basically the sailor guy from The Simpsons. I got you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, well, he looks great. That's yeah, that's exactly what I was picturing. Don't edit your first draft in the least. Yeah. <laughs> um, now it's the time of the season. That that snitch, the elf on the shelf, is just wandering around. Uh, you know, telling on on children. Uh, and I was really surprised to hear that we had so many legends about little people as in, you know, these sort of like fairy-ish. Uh, we just did the Cottingley fairies story. So we've been thinking a lot about little little people running around. And we have, oh, and we've been watching Mr. Bean. So there's, yeah, he's so a little he's, guy. He's around. a little guy running around. Um, but like we have the Ellis of Cheshire kind of legend. We have the well-known, I mean, if you're from Connecticut, the little people village why are there so many little guys running around our woods? Like, what's what's up with that? <laughs> uh, little state, little guys. Yeah, that's, that's all I can think of. This is a great answer. I mean, it could be, it could be, you know, what you mentioned before—the sort of like immigrant population. A lot of, uh, you know, cultures like uh, Sean's, you know, the, the Irish and. Uh, in, in different places. Okay, my family's short, but they're not. They're <laughs> no, they not. Have, we have a lot of folklore about little people, whether it's, you know, elves, fairies, things like that. So you kind of, there's a lot of those populations kind of coming in here and, and maybe they're bringing that folklore with them or they have more of an openness to experiencing certain things if there really are little elves running around our woods. Oh, and I hope there are. <laughs> um, yeah. And do you, do you think the little people's village was really built for for these creatures? What what I think was is so interesting. We were talking about this a while ago about how there are still things that can't explain. So um, the little people village in Middlebury Waterbury is another great example of that because. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, I think the town historian of Middlebury like finally unearthed like the real story of who built the little people village. It would, you know, there were kind of rumors about who had built it and stories about who had built it. Some people said it was part of Lake Quasipod, um, part of like the trolley line. Other people, there was other stories about uh, a man who 
the spiritual witch, all these things. And um, the, the, I believe it was the town story in Novarity, finally unearthed the story um, about the person who built it. And um, the long and short of it is, is that he had uh, this, this, um, this guy had a service station. And when the state built a new road, which I believe is, I'm not 100% on this, but I think it is what we today call Route 63. Mm -hmm. um, when they built that, that was going to bypass his service station. So he was going to pivot his business and open a nursery instead, like a plant and flower nursery. Mm -hmm. And he built the village as part of the nursery. So that is like the background of who built it. But we still have no explanation as to why he built it. Like, why did he decide that he was going to build this as part of this plant nursery that he was going to build? Uh, and like, to hear stories about how the little people was like in its prime before it was like really reclaimed by the forest and lots of people have traveled through there and things have gotten wrecked. To, to really hear about it when it was still in good condition, it was, it, it, it sounds like it was very meticulously built. Um, I think some of the buildings like had been wired for electricity so it would have looked like they had lights on inside them. So even learning kind of more of the information about the history of the area, it weirder. <laughs> still don't have a good explanation as to why he built it. Maybe he, maybe there actually are little people and they were going to be in his nursery and uh, he, he created this as uh, a home for them. So that, that that's like those kind of, that like the the Cheshire Elves and the, the, the little people village kind of fall into that category like we were talking about before uh, people, you know, bring over you know, stories, and especially in Celtic traditions, uh -huh. you know, the Bay, the big, big element in those traditions. Um, the other side is, the, the other kind of little people story that we have is the Makiwamisa, which is a story from Mohegan tradition. And um, th this one is, is really, really interesting for a couple reasons. Um, the 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 Maki Risa, um you did you know there's there's a there's a sense in a lot of indigenous traditions about like balance and like the balancing forces of nature and things in balance. So the Maki Risa were the little of Mohegan tradition and the the head of the little people who her name was Brandiswami was married to one of the giants of the human tradition. Oh. And, you know, that's part of the whole balance. And um, the little people taught the little people medicine, and they taught them things about agriculture. And there were several, um, like, medicine people in the Mohican tribe and chiefs who claimed to have, like, personal relationships with the Nakimisa. To, to the Mohegans, you know, this is not storytelling folklore. This this is 
you know, part of their tradition. That this is a real, this is a real thing. And um, when there was a planned housing development that was going to be built, I believe near um, near Olympus Hill, um, near where the Mohegan lands are in Connecticut. Um, the, they lodged a complaint that this housing development had the potential to um, disturb the little people and the little people's homes on the hill. And they, the Mohegan tribe won. Like they, the, the housing development, the, the housing project was not built um, because it had the potential to disturb uh, the people. Um, well, that's uh, just like in uh, Iceland, you yeah. know, supposedly they build the roads around hills because that's where the elves and trolls live. Exactly. Yep. 100%. The other thing that I find so interesting about this story, which is a great lead-in for that, is, like, I am such a believer in the collective unconscious mm -hmm. that we have, like, this root of storytelling in our culture. And so I was, uh, I was on vacation in Mexico last year and we took a trip to uh, Cenote. And while we were hanging out swimming in the Cenote, which is just essentially a, a sinkhole filled with water, um, the, our like tour person, our tour guide, um, pointed out this shrine that was on one of the rocks near the cenote. And she was like, oh, did you notice the shrine? This is where we make offerings to the little people because, you know, if we're gonna do construction projects, um, you know, we have to make sure that we need offerings from them so that they're not upset, they don't get offended. Um, and she was telling us about this bridge that uh, the city tried to build a bunch of times and then they collapsed three times. And so they finally made the proper offerings for loyal people. And I was just like, oh my God, like, and th this is, this was the Mayan Riviera people. Right. Um, it, thousands of miles away from Connecticut. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the story of the Makiwisa, you know, except, you know, the Mohegans would do offerings for them in their woven baskets. Um, to make sure they had enough to eat and, you know, make sure they had tobacco and all this stuff. And like what you said before about Iceland, making sure to go around hills. It's and like that's we have so far these, away too. Uh, we have like these stories that are the same <laughs> from cultures that could have never possibly interacted. It's just amazing. Yeah. And, and that with that one in particular, um, I I think like kind of like bringing in the the aspect of being like a skeptic i still think it's like really really important to respect and, and honor these these particular things especially something like this like you know with an indigenous people that was you know this is their land like um and there was one detail that really stuck out to me as an illustrator was that you are you're not supposed to look directly at the Makiwisa. Mm -hmm. um, so I was like, oh, that 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 poses an interesting challenge. How do I illustrate something you're not supposed to look at? You know, right. I was like, I don't 
Mm-hmm. I don't want to misinterpret this this being and 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 have it you know cause offense to anybody. That is the last thing I want to do. And you so, certainly don't want to offend the Makawisa. I really yes. don't. Yeah, they're the last ones I want to you know upset. So what I did was I decided to focus on a. I drew a basket of offerings. So I drew like sunflower seeds and strawberries in a little basket. And there's just a hand coming out from behind the tree <laughs> grabbing it. So I was like, okay, that's, that's how we're going to avoid upsetting the little people. So <laughs> yeah, I love, accomplished. I love those creative solutions. <laughs> um, now for all those dinosaur lovers out there, we have to talk about the Glastonbury pterodactyl. <laughs> What's the deal with that? No, be still yeah. my heart. It's so exciting to <laughs> well, hear. All, all the, the, the little boys, the grown-up uh, little boys, are going to love to hear about the pterodactyl. Yeah. Um, so Glastonbury is, is, I don't know, possibly the cryptid capital of Connecticut. Yeah. There was a bunch of not only, around there. Yeah. Not only do they have, like, one of Connecticut's most famous cryptids, the, the Glastonbury Milwaukee's, but they also... Uh, Supposedly had this pterodactyl hanging around, flying, flying through the skies of Glastonbury. Um, the uh, one, one, uh, one winter, uh, several years after the Milwaukee sighting, the uh, the, the Glastonbury uh, Hunting Association. Uh, I guess there were stories about the pterodactyl for, for a few years beforehand, but the, the hunting association decided they were going to put an end to this scourge of the skies once and for all. So they organized a uh, they organized a pterodactyl hunt uh, prior to their annual game dinner. People um, were so much more whimsical back then. I know. <laughs> there must be a pterodactyl. Let's go hunt it. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And uh, yeah, they uh, they 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 set out on a mission to try to catch the pterodactyl. I, I don't think they did because it, it doesn't sound like uh, they served any pterodactyl meat at their um, at their uh, at, at their big games in their year. Well, it's probably for the best. What, I can't imagine a more endangered animal to yeah. shoot. <laughs> I, that's, that's my favorite thing with like all cryptid stories. It's like People see this remarkable thing in the woods, and their first instinct is, "Let's go shoot it." You, know? <laughs> you see the Bigfoot all the time. <laughs> yeah, like I don't know. It's it's very very American, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's that is the story of the, the Glastonbury uh, turtle. <laughs> such a such an interesting story, especially since you know in history. They, if anyone saw anything strange in the sky resembling that, they probably had no frame of reference to what a pterodactyl was until, you know, we kind of started understanding what dinosaurs were. So it's just very fascinating to think of people who are just vaguely getting the concept of dinosaurs also thinking they see this pterodactyl flying around. It's, it's pretty interesting. I think, um, I think the following year they, they put out they sent a letter to somebody, I don't know who, they wanted to try to get Wooly Man for the next year's. They had a good sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> I, I bet the mammoth probably tastes better, but but, but I don't know, pterodactyl might taste like chicken. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everything tastes like chicken. <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, we have to talk about the big kahuna, literally. Mr. or, or Ms. or whoever they are, Bigfoot. Oh, Mr. Foot. 
Um, we have a lot of forest land in Connecticut. There have been Bigfoot sightings in the area. We talked a little bit with our friends at New York Mystery Machine about Bigfoot in New England. But can you um, can you tell us a little bit about any of like the major Bigfoot sightings? And, and also, why haven't there been more? I mean, I feel like there's so much land. You know, we're not the Pacific Northwest by any means, but it's surprising that we don't have more, you know, Bigfoot running around the valley or something like that. Running around the valley! Running around the valley! <laughs> <laughs> bad sons. Yeah. <laughs> we, we actually do have this very rich um, Bigfoot tradition of storytelling in the state. Um, there, there's a story that I found in the late 1800s uh, about from the, the Arctic Valley, it, it was uh, about the quote unquote cotton, cotton hollow wild man. Um, these these hikers in the woods encountered this this man of massive stature um, who kind of burst onto their trail as they were, I think, coming home and 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 asked them directions to the next town before bolting off again. Um, okay. You you were like massive man, Jim. That sounds like Bigfoot. Uh yep. bursts onto their trail, sounds like Bigfoot to me. Asks them directions. <laughs> I I mean, maybe even Bigfoot gets lost sometimes. I, don't <laughs> know. I mean, like if if he is an interdimensional uh, being, right. you, you you have to think that like traveling those portals gets confusing Absolutely. Yeah, well, sorry lost in the mm-hmm. He just doesn't know the area, so he stays away from it. Is this Glastonbury or Portland? I don't know which. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, and then like supposedly the next day they went and took castings of the footprints that he made. Um, so th- there's that. And then we kind of have our own homegrown um, Bigfoot story, which is the Winston Wildman. Yes. Um, that was... Um, Allegedly seen by uh, the the town selectman. Uh, again, it was one of those things that he was walking his dog to the next town, and this this large hairy creature burst onto the onto the road that he was on. It got scared, and the dog got scared, and then it ran off in the other direction. And then there were other sightings of it. And then um, things were like relatively quiet for decades, and then. In like the 1970s, people started having these sightings of the Winstead Wildman. So he's kind of like our uh, our homegrown Bigfoot. Yeah. But then um, we all we know had, guys were letting the body hair show, by the way, in the 70s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure came back. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, and then uh, like you were saying uh, earlier, Carrie, the um, there there has been like actual Bigfoot research. Done in the state, um, the TV show um, Finding Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, they did a whole episode here in Connecticut. They talked to a bunch of people um, that had had Bigfoot encounters and you know, obviously, the um, is it the Bigfoot Research Organization that does the the tracking? Yeah, Bigfoot. Yeah, yeah. Like you could find plenty of reports in Connecticut. So. Yeah, we, we actually do have this, this pretty big like, Bigfoot tradition. Yeah, it's, it's lesser known than, uh, than other places. Exactly. For sure. And I love like the rendering here that Val did of the Winstead Wild Man, who it's it's really, you know, it's 
it's Bigfooty, right? But it's it's a specific, it's like an original take on it. There's a bit of a Chewbacca-ness to him. <laughs> like the face is very, like it, it's human. That, like he kind of has a mustache too. So you see the human in there, but there's something, I mean, he's hairy if he's just a guy. Um, and yeah. Yeah. He has Arthur Conan Doyle's mustache. <laughs> he has a great stash. Um, but it's really, really interesting because it is kind of one of those in you know legends that that kind of each region has their own version of like the little people right is this sort of big hairy guy in the woods and and is it just a guy or is it you know some sort of missing link sort of thing and which one is scarier <laughs> i don't want yeah. it to be just a guy sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's funny you should say that because after the initial encounter people were like oh well it's actually this convict who escaped who's living in the woods or like this Great. this kind of ramp who's living in the woods so there were people who were like floating that kind of theory and then other people were like, oh, you know, I saw him, he was on my roof, he was ripping the tiles off. And then um, I think part of the, the inspiration for the illustration was he ate some of these onion yeah, crops or something. Yeah, just raw onions yeah. right out of the ground. <laughs> like the Grinch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I just wanted to wrap up, you know, you have at the end of the book, which I think is really interesting, kind of explanations for certain things that people might ask about or wonder, you know, why you didn't include or, or also things that, and we've talked about several of these, um, like the Moodist noises or the Leatherman, you know, sort of Connecticut folklore. It's not really cryptidy, but I was really fascinated by, you know, your very sort of um, respectful perspective on the melon heads, the faceless people of Monroe, the frog people, which we, I think we talked about on our first episode. And we said, you know, at the time, especially with the melon heads, um, if, if they were people, they might've been, you know, act like just sort of ostracized from society. Maybe there was some sort of fear there of the unknown or the sort of un unusual or or we, we, we talked about like there could have been some racism mixed up in those some of those legends if they were you know like mentally challenged in any way or had mental illnesses or things like that um people who were different were likely the exactly. you know, subject of these things and so why do you think that certain ostracized people in society become the targets of these sort of really fantastic legends that kind of snowball over the years I think it's just, it's, um, it's fear of the unknown. Um, and, it, you know, unfortunately, society loves to, to find a scapegoat, you know, um, they, it, it, a lot of times it's easier to focus on somebody else and, and their problems and, and their lives and, you know, focusing, focusing on your own. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think really it just boils down to fear, um, not understanding, you know, like I think that especially with like, you know, the melon heads, um, I like, I grew up in Monroe and like my mom, even she talked about like, you know, the families that, you know, were called the melon heads. And she always like described them as like, like they were like lower 
like lower middle class, like they were, they were poor, they didn't have electricity, things like this. So it's like, you know, it's, there's really, in cases like that, there's really nothing supernatural going on. It's just people don't understand. And I think that when people don't understand, these stories just kind of get out of hand. So I definitely appreciate that. Like Pat and I talked a lot about, you know, things that we definitely didn't want to, like, you know, keep perpetuating um, because like every every time we do like a show or anything or any sort of book signing, almost um, well, like almost every time it's like, oh, are the melon heads in here? And they're the guys, yeah. <laughs> um, and like, I, I get it. Like it's a very, it's a, a, a quintessentially Connecticut story like you know I like I said I grew up in Monroe it's like very ingrained in my my childhood but I I like being able to tell people like hey this isn't like the best story to be focusing on but like look at how many other cool awesome things there are to to talk about in Connecticut for kids and the the funny thing is too is that I've had this happen um where when you kind of point out that it's not really a nice story, like people, I've had it happen. Some people kind of are like, don't want to hear it. Um, but other people are like, oh, you know what? Now that you say that, it's not a nice story. Yeah. It's like just that connection was never made before. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a nice reaction to happen. But somebody was like, you know, it really isn't that nice now that you say that. Yeah. But, um, uh, funny enough, the, the frog people we were initially going to include as a chapter. And as I started doing the research, um, you know, it's, you know, when you're talking about cryptids, it's where, you know, the folklore is where history gets fuzzy, you know. Um, so as I was looking into the frog people, I kept kind of coming across these things that were indicating that it actually was a, a real family who like had some kind of physical defects and it seemed like they like lived in abject poverty kind of removed from the rest of society. And it like, as I was like, finding this out, I was just like, oh my god, this is so sad. Yeah. Like, and, and so, yeah, um, like Val said, we had, we had a lot of conversation about what we wanted to do. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you know, you guys are folklorists. You're, you're kind of exploring Connecticut folklore through this specific lens, and like Val said, it's you know, certain things with cryptids is a fear of the unknown. And sometimes that's demonizing like actual people and making them into these monsters, right? But sometimes it's like people just didn't understand certain things or, you know, didn't understand what they were seeing. Sometimes it's the blockheads, which who knows what that is. That's wild. Um, But at the end of the day, it's sort of exploring these legends that have been passed down or you know these really sort of state specific legends and um it's really fascinating stuff and i love the 
the work into researching that those backstories and that folklore that you guys did for uh, Connecticut Cryptids. And um, we just want to really thank you so much for joining us today, Pat and Val. Um, now, Pat, where can our listeners grab a copy of Connecticut Cryptids for purchase themselves? That's a beautiful book, by the way. And, yes. and, and I really enjoyed this. I, I, uh, I learned and laughed. I loved, um, <laughs> uh, but, it, wow. but, but it's, a, it's a beautiful presentation. Yes. I mean, I mean, it, it's the, obviously the illustrations are gorgeous. Uh, the cover is beautiful and it's, it's just a nice object to hold in your hands. I like this book. Mm-hmm. Val, Val did the covers as well. Yeah. Full credit where credit is due. Well, yes. Thank you so much for having us. It was, it was wonderful to talk to you all. Um, the book is available um on amazon on barnes and noble if you want to support a local business um supplies are a little limited right now because of the holidays um but um it's it has been stopped at strange ways where val works in new haven uh books and company in camden has it um Weirdo Wonderland, Shelton has the Comics and Comics and River has it as well. Um, it's also the publishing platform that we used, uh, Ingram, uh, means that it is pretty much available to anyone who uses Ingram, any bookstore that uses Ingram for distribution. So if folks have a local bookstore that they like to support, they should be able to. Well, that's great. We're going to list the uh, stores that have it stocked uh, in the description of this website. If you're uh, listening to this or if you're watching this, hi, patrons. Um, (laughs) Yes. And uh, I also happen to get two copies of the book in preparation for this episode. So anyone listening, just keep an eye out on Instagram after this airs. We'll do a little giveaway so you could have a free copy of your own, but definitely go and patronize all of well go local first and then if you're like me and you wanted to get it quick just uh amazon trash um <laughs> you can find connecticut Cryptids, a field guide to the weird and wonderful creatures of the nutmeg state written by patrick scalisi illustrated by valerie ruby omen wherever good books are sold so thank you guys so much again and happy holidays Thanks, happy holidays too. And is there anything you guys want to plug besides yes. the book? Any social media, anything you want to throw in there? Um, I mean, you know, the, the good people can follow us on Instagram at CT Cryptids. Um, we're, we always post when we're doing like signings and things like that. Next in 2024, we're going to be doing like a lot of uh, programming at libraries and, and things like that. So um, definitely <laughs> looking forward to that. Awesome. Well, uh, we will, uh, our listeners can find you there and they'll know where to find you elsewhere after that. So uh, perfect. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, 
personal details about both the books and the authors' lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And we are especially grateful to those of you who have been uh, joining us all year long and those of you who are just getting in now on the top couple of Patreon tiers there. Uh, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, Ira, Pete, Anna, and Delaney. Uh, we didn't get any mail back, Carrie, so I think that all of the cards should have reached their destinations. Nothing got sent back. No, no return to sender's address unknown. No such number, no such zone. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McKay. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. 3 a.m. The comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters, it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Let's go.